Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, History Hack. Boney here, and it has been a while. I hope you're all well. The boss lady has very kindly let me steal a bit of her airwaves and share my new show with you. It's called The Damcasters, and it is an aviation history podcast that looks at everything, not just the Second World War, like the old hedge-hopping show used to do. So the episode I'm going to share with you actually is Second World War aviation, but there's more than just that. Many thanks to the team here at History Hack for letting me share the show with you. You can find us at thedamcasterspod.com, wherever you find all your pods and damcasterspod on all the socials. I do hope you like it, and it's nice to be back with friends here on History Hack. Over to the show. But once in the air, uh, it could do things that no other aeroplane could do. And I think the point I make in the book, and it's an interesting comparison with Spitfire, is that I don't think that there's any other aeroplane in history that has managed to fulfill successfully uh, all four roles that uh, air power doctrine suggests an air force needs to carry out. Welcome to the Damcasters, brought to you in association with the Pima Air and Space Museum. I'm your host, Matt Bone. In March 1945, the RAF's 140-wing of two group of the 2nd Tactical Air Force flew an audacious raid into the heart of Copenhagen. They flew at wave-top level all the way across the North Sea and then down into Copenhagen itself, where they attacked the Shell House, which was the headquarters of the Gestapo. Now, 140-wing had form. They'd done this thing before. But this particular raid is one of interest for us today, as we are joined by Roland White, who's the author of Mosquito, the RAF's legendary wooden wonder and its most extraordinary mission. And it really is an extraordinary story. Throughout the book, we look at what's going on in Denmark, along with the incredible men of 140 Wing, led by the mercurial Basil Embry, who we will talk about probably not as much as we should, but he's a massive rabbit hole. Roland very generously gave me some of his time. So if you're watching this on day of release, the book is out today, especially here in the UK. Links in the description below to grab it. Do all the likes and subscribes, all that good stuff. But we have to start with the elephant in the room, because if I go over here to the bookshelf and I grab his last book, which is Harrier 809, right at the back, there's a teaser in it for what should have been the next book. So we have to start by asking Roland, why didn't we get the tornado book? Let's get starting because the, the, the opening question is the one I asked you when we were at Paul's thing. Because mm. I have, of course, yeah. Harrier 8 or 9, which is fantastic. And at the end of it, you have a fantastic tease for six, uh, 617 Squadron in the Gulf. That didn't happen. So no. 
What was the story behind that? I think I know the answer. It's the secret. Yeah, well, but it, it, why didn't yeah, why didn't we get the six one seven book? Uh, it was a book I was really excited about writing. I, I talked to my publisher uh, about writing a trilogy of books that took us from. Uh, so I suppose the late, late 70s through to um, around 2000. And the idea was that uh, Harrier 809 would be the first and would start with Simon Hargreaves intercepting the first uh, Argentinian aircraft that, that, that encountered the, the task force. Uh, 1982 uh, uh, would uh, skip through um, Tornado um, in the mid-80s, seen a li- largely through the prism of 617 Squadron's uh, involvement in the 1984 Giant Voice Strategic Air Command bombing competition, which uh, they were not expected to do well in, at least by the Pentagon, but ended up winning. And in doing so, established some of the uh, expertise in medium-level bombing that would then be required um, in Gulf War One, uh, when a precision bombing capability was introduced, interestingly, by... Um, uh, Bob Iverson uh, as boss of 617 Squadron who had been shot down flying a Harrier in the Falklands and then the the, the trilogy was going to finish with a book that looked at Britain's relationship with stealth um, ending with the selection of the X-35 over the X-32 in the um, famous joint strike fighter X-plane competition through the prism of the RAF pilots who flew the F-117 stealth fighter on exchange, but ending with a, an epilogue uh, that featured Simon Hargreaves, who you'll remember was going to feature in the prologue of the first book, or did feature in the prologue of the first book, flying the first uh, X mission in which uh, he took off normally, uh, or short takeoff, uh, refueling supersonic flight, and then landed vertically in the same sortie, thus proving the capability of the the um, X thirty five. And I'd got about two thirds of the way through all the interviews for the second book, the six one seven squadron book, um, and then COVID hit, and suddenly all of those uh, road trips that I was plan planning over the summer to go and do the last few interviews with the people uh, involved in that that. 1984 bombing competition kind of went up in smoke and you know all of us were uh, wondering uh, you know how we would fill the time that uh, we we had been given through no, no longer con- commuting um, uh, how we were going to reorganize our lives as a result of uh, the restrictions that were imposed on us and and I thought well I, I need to try and find a subject to replace the 617 squadron book which I can't pursue in the way that i'd wanted to um with something i can and it struck me that doing a second world war story uh where i would be relying on um archives and uh um, previously written accounts given that all of the participants were were already deceased um was the way forward and i'd always loved the um mosquito and i'd always been aware of those uh 140 wing raids um uh, prison um or who's in uh, in Jutland, and then obviously perhaps the most uh, substantial one of them, the raid on the Gestapo H- HQ in in Copenhagen, and um, thought, right, uh, let's take a, a dive into Second World War, which I'd never done before. I'd always sort of almost deliberately stayed clear of it because I felt there were people like James Holland and Ben McIntyre and and, and John Nicol doing it really, really well, um, whereas I'd sort of found my own Cold War niche. So that's that's how it came about. Yeah, still want that tornado book. It sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do too. I, I do too. It's, it's uh, trying to establish 
lost momentum is tough. But the, that tornado book, and, and just to tempt you further, because I mean, I really am interested in it. The, it in, in that story, you also have the Australian F-111s uh, who competed in the same competition. You've also got F-111s from Lakenheath um, in Norfolk, uh, Suffolk rather, um, competing um, in the same competition. Um, and you know, I mean, I spoke to some of the Australian crews involved. The um, one of the navigators um, uh, had been uh, uh, was the navigator aboard the Canberra that dropped the last Australian bomb um, in Vietnam. So you've got all sorts of threads that that can come into that story. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's got a lot going for it. With, you know, without a doubt. <laughs> and yeah, that. Uh, so anyway, I've got to I've got to make a decision about what's next. That is in the frame, but um, I may have caught a Second World War bug as well. It it, it bites hard that one, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let let's get into it, really, because I thoroughly enjoyed it, and thank you so much for sending over a copy nice and early because I I devoured it. It was I have to admit, didn't devour it as quickly as Harrier Eight Hundred Nine. I, I I think that's because it's. Um, uh, uh, about forty percent longer. Harry, Harry and I. I think um, Harry eight oh nine is in lots of ways a more uh, obviously. I mean, this is the beauty of the Falklands War. It, it was six weeks long. Mm-hmm. You know, any story about the Falklands War uh, is, you know, it's by definition self-contained, and you can feed different threads into it. Whereas, um, you know, the story in um, uh, in Copenhagen in, in Mosquito. Uh, depends on you understanding the things that came first. And unless you have a, unless you have become engaged with, uh, involved with and invested in the things that led to that raid, and that is the career of the Mosquito, um, the, the people who led uh, the, the, the wing that um, carried out the raid, but also uh, of the lives and the efforts of the people on the ground in Denmark who um, begged for it. Um, it doesn't carry the, the, the sort of substance and resonance that uh, you know any good story needs. You need to care about um, everybody involved. And for that, you have to go back two years. So I'm not talking about six weeks. I'm talking about two years. Uh, so really the beginning of 1943 is where, where the story begins. The thing that I really enjoyed about Mosquito is actually less the Mosquito bits. It was that whole, the whole section, the research you did into the Danish resistance, because Denmark has in the sort of popular readings of things, you know, we, we hear about what's going on in Holland and, and um, uh, France, ma- mainly because of, you know, Market Garden and Overlord. But Denmark was that sort of strange place because the, the, when the Nazis invaded annex it in april 1940 they called it a model protectorate because they were trying to do something different with denmark what what was that because that really creates a lot of tension within the various groups within denmark yeah i mean um you know hitler and the nazis really had no designs on denmark at all they were probably you know happy enough for would have been happy enough for it to remain neutral except that in order to seize norway which was a country that they uh, really did want to to take control of uh, because of um, you know iron ore supplies and the rest of it um, they needed denmark as a stepping stone so denmark was really just a casualty of geography uh, it was on the way to to norway um, denmark uh, um, 
had no uh, the, the armed forces were utterly incapable of uh, resisting any kind of um, Nazi attack and unlike Norway there wasn't the space or the geography to uh, to, to, to get the government and the and the king uh, uh, away from the country um, before the Germans were there. They came into Copenhagen, they came up north uh, through uh, Schleswig-Holstein at exactly the same time. And the decision was taken that uh, in order to save lives, um, uh, they they had to go along with the German demand that they, that they would uh, remain, you know, independent under German control and Germany would... Take their neutrality, so uh, they remained uh, for the for for certainly um, three years. Uh, Denmark was in this sort of weird superposition between occupation and independence, neutrality, and, and and being part of the axis in which they had an elected government and the king remained uh, in Copenhagen, and so uh, they were, from a legal point of view, um, an axis power. Um, so unlike. You mentioned the Netherlands and France and others. Unlike the Netherlands, Belgium, France, uh, Poland, there was no possibility of uh, of um, free Danes simply joining and setting up uh, units of their own under the, the the Allied command. You know, Denmark had the, it had a unique position, and and the Germans hoped that through uh, a light touch they would be able to sort of demonstrate the world that. To the world that actually, you know, being uh, under the protectorate of the Reich was uh, not necessarily the worst thing in the world. So they had an interest in Denmark being happy, stable, well-fed, comfortable, and all, all the rest of it. You start introducing the most fabulous cast of characters in in Denmark. We're, we're going to get to the RF guys, and I'm purposely putting Basil Emery as far back yeah. as we could because that's a rabbit hole we can disappear yeah. down for a while, but. The the thing that I found really interesting is is you've got the tensions within Denmark from those who were trying not to cause trouble and those who wanted to resist. You have that tension. Then in London as well, you've got a bit of a turf war between MI6 and SOE as well mm-hmm. over Denmark. For you writing it, and you, you, you explain it beautifully, how do you sort of unpick all those tensions so that you can... You can you could make it make sense because I, yeah. I can see when you were probably reading the files, you were just sort of pulling your hair out at times. I mean, it was um, it was the thing I think which concerned me most. I mean, there is more, undoubtedly, there's more uh, that happens on the ground in this story than in 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 the other books. And I, in the end, was uh, th- there was a gift in the uh, for me in the shape of. Um, a gathering of two families um, in Denmark in the summer of 1939 um, that seemed to me to offer uh, a through line um, which uh, at the same time as introducing them at the beginning um, carried me through to the end through which I could explore all sorts of other directions and keep connecting it to the centre and you know it it was one of those sort of eureka moments and occasionally as you're doing your your research you you come across them and so it was two families the lassens and the witchfelds got together in the summer of uh, of 1939 before a war had broken out but undoubtedly you know storm clouds were um, forming over europe they were an angle uh, or or the um the lassens were a danish 
um, German family and the Witchfelds were um, an Anglo-Danish family. Um, and um, on the, the Witchfeld side, uh, Monica, um, there's the sort of matriarch, uh, was a, an Irish aristocrat who, in search, you know, thought Ireland was boring uh, as a teenager growing up, despite having helped uh, work as a gun runner for her father. Uh, it was sort of, you know, the, the rural life in Ireland was too small for her. Um, married a, a, a Danish aristocrat who lived, who worked at the embassy, um, uh, and moved to Denmark, where she became the sort of um, the head of his estate. There, her great friend was Suzanne Lassen, um, and she was a children's book illustrator. Um, their kids are interesting too. Monica Witchfeld had three: um, uh, daughter Inky and two boys. Uh, uh, Suzanne Lassen um, had a couple of boys and uh, also there that summer was their cousin um, so uh, uh, Inky Witchfeld uh, went on, she was 19 years old she went on to marry the head of the SOE um, in uh, in Denmark um, after becoming his secretary Monica ran the resistance on an island called Lolland and went on to become the first Danish woman sentenced to death by the Nazis um, and a, a sort of rallying point for the resistance as a result. Um, Anders Lassen, Suzanne's oldest son, became the only member of the SAS during the Second World War to win the VC. And he's an extraordinary character. His story alone is a podcast. Uh, Anders' brother, Franz, uh, uh also managed to escape from denmark uh, and he joined uh, soe as an agent and was parachuted back into um to copenhagen as an explosives instructor um and then their cousin axel van den Busch, um was a member of an elite prussian unit who uh disgusted appalled by uh witnessing the uh the, the killing of jews by the ss in ukraine um, realized he could no longer serve the regime that uh, he, 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 was, um, he should have been loyal to um, and made his way to the German resistance and to Klaus von Stauffenberg. Um, and he became the first person uh, tasked with uh, assassinating Hitler. And um, when we can talk about that later, obviously it, it, it didn't happen, but it was... It was a whisker. It was a well-planned, very, very elegantly thought-out um, operation, which uh, faltered right at, I mean, within days of taking place uh, at, at the hand of mosquitoes, um, uh, ironically enough. But through those, um, through Monica and her daughter Suzanne and her sons, uh, I was able to, to to find a way of linking a lot of that stuff that happened on the ground in Denmark in a way that that, that felt as if it was a, a a really compelling story that that belonged together. I think he succeeded. I well, thank you, <laughs> thank you. It was fun. I mean, it's a lot of lot of fun. I mean, you can imagine as a you know writer, you kind of get that. You think this is just gold. What you know, this is just fantastic. Because it, they, you know we we won't we won't spoil it too much dear listener but yeah Fleming's most the um Ralph Hollingsworth as well running running the show oh. back in London as well they, they're just wonderful characters and you know you get into things about expenses and stuff which normally would be a bit dry but you just think they're 
yeah, they could they expenses. Could, God, this, yeah. The, we don't want to sell this book on the strength of expenses, Matt. Yeah, no, I but wish yeah, you, you hadn't think, mentioned that. No, but it, I, I thought it was great. You know, here, here, here we are. We're all probably about to get shot tomorrow. So yeah, yeah. let's let's use the yeah, kitty yeah, to, yeah, the, yeah, to yeah, the best. Yeah, well, you're, you're you're talking about um, Fleming Moose, Please. who, uh, in, as I mentioned, Inky Inky Wetchfer- Witchfeld married and. And Fleming Moose uh, was, uh, I mean, he was, he was quite a character. He was exiled to West Africa uh, for, for, he was part of a you know, very wealthy family in Denmark, exiled to West Africa for forging a, uh, a check uh, on the company account. Um, and then he became a, a sort of, um, got a, a, a sort of Kurt type character in West Africa, where he essentially had um, you know, inter- in complete autonomy uh, over a region, uh, trading region uh, but when war broke out um as many of the expats did he kind of felt more strongly about uh the the idea that 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 germany shouldn't the idea of germany's occupation of denmark should not stand than many of the people who were in denmark and he made his way by dugout canoe by torpedoed freighter um and ultimately uh british destroyer all the way back to liverpool um, where he uh, joined SOE, was trained as a parachute agent, um, and then parachuted back into um, into Denmark uh, to take control of SOE in in, in January ni- in January nineteen forty three, and and up and then up until then between nineteen forty and nineteen forty three, the uh, special operations executive effort in Denmark. Um, led by ralph hollingworth who was a royal navy reserve officer who uh had been in denmark on the day of the invasion had had it had it'd been bedeviled by bad luck um but with moose it suddenly kind of caught a wave he was incredible for, for all uh his flaws he was incredibly energetic he was a doer um and he made all the sort of necessary connections to um accelerate the work of soe in denmark and and really make sure that that those who were inclined to uh fight the germans uh, had the equipment and the organization and support from britain that they needed to do that it's a fantastic cast of individualists, isn't it? Who, who sort of band oh. together because, because when we start looking at the other side, as we said, we're going to get onto Basil and Brie as well, but we've got the Mosquito itself, which is yeah. the most amazing individualist aircraft you could, you could think of. And, and despite my love for a certain Hawker aircraft, which I'm sure we'll get <laughs> mentioned in a minute, I, I think, and I said this on the, the old history rage thing, I think it's the Mosquito that should get the adoration the Spitfire mm. does because yeah people yeah. people think the spitfire did everything the mosquito literally did i yeah. I, I i guess because it's this sort of central character as much as the people that fly them and and uh the danes as well to you what makes the mozzie so special i mean it's a sort of well-worn cliche isn't it that if it looks right it flies right um and uh you know you can think of lots of examples of where that's not the case but if, if there were an example of an airplane that absolutely uh, uh embodies that notion it's it's the mosquito i mean when jeffrey de havilland uh the uh the 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 uh, man behind the de havilland um uh, aircraft company uh, first saw it, he said it seems to be made mostly of engines and propellers and it does have that sort of incredibly sort of aggressive powerful uh, front-footed feel to it even on the ground it's all kind of uh, power and potential and in in the air it um 
it, it, that was no less true. Uh, you know, when when it was first demonstrated to Hap Arnold, the uh, U.S. Army general who ran the Army Air Corps um, in spring of 1941. He saw, he saw a number of planes that year, um, but that was the, the Mosquito was the airplane that he uh, reckoned was outstanding and insisted on taking a full set of plans back with him. But it's because Jeffrey de Havilland's son, uh, also confusingly called Jeffrey, uh, had performed a display for him, which ended in a sort of spiraling vertical climb above the airfield, um, which I'm sure was impressive enough. Uh, and uh, and then repeated the whole display with one engine feathered. Um, so if the first time uh, didn't impress you, the second time really was going to impress you. Um, but, uh, you know, every pilot who flew the Mosquito had sort of similarly, uh, uh, um, similar fondness for it. It, it absolutely tugged to the left on, um, on takeoff because it had two propellers that were powerfully spinning in the same direction. Um, but once in the air, uh, it could do things that no other aeroplane could do. And I think the point I make in the book, and it's an interesting comparison with Spitfire, is that I don't think that there's any other aeroplane in history that has managed to fulfill successfully uh, all four roles that uh, air power doctrine suggests an air force needs to carry out. So obviously fighter air defense is kind of straightforward enough so the, so the mosquito was uh the most effective night fighter of the second world war and, and um uh racked up a huge tally of kills uh in that capacity it was designed as a fast bomber and it excelled in that uh, that role it could carry um to berlin a bomb load um that was as substantial as the early models of the um the b-17 flying fortress but it did it with a crew of two instead of ten and it could do it twice in a night because it was so fast uh rather than once um the third role uh is um intelligence reconnaissance surveillance uh, and and the mosquito was the preeminent um, reconnaissance airplane, Second World War, uh, responsible for crisscrossing Europe and bringing back vitally important photographs like those that told us where the Germans were uh, developing the V1 and V2 missiles. And then lastly, this is perhaps most surprisingly of all, um, uh, is mobility and air transport. And here, the Mosquito was sort of pressed into service for British aircraft, British Overseas uh, Airways Corporation, um, the precursor to British Airways to fly the ball bearing route, what was known as the ball bearing route between RAF Lucas and Stockholm in Sweden. Stockholm supplied the best ball bearings in the world. They were required for well, every single aero engine that we made. So every Merlin that went into a Lancaster, Spitfire, Hurricane, uh, Mosquito, Halifax, you know, the rest of it uh, uh, required ball bearings. Um, so the, the, you had to run the gauntlet of the German air defences in northern Denmark and southern Norway between Scotland and, and, and Stockholm to do that. Um, the DC-3s were hopelessly vulnerable as a, a couple that were shot down by the, a couple of Swedish um, uh, uh, DC-3s that were shot down by the Germans demonstrated. Um, but um, the Mosquito had a chance of getting through. And so 12 Mosquitos uh, that, were on, that were on the civil register for BOAC, flown by civilian crews, 
uh, flew to and from Denmark. But as well as ball bearings and diplomatic baggage, they also carried passengers. Um, they could carry in a felt line Bombay uh, with a oxygen mask, um, sandwich and a flask of coffee, a uh, single passenger. And the, the remarkable number of people, uh, they, they brought back um, uh, pilots and uh, navigators and aircrew had been shot down and occupied Europe and made their way to Sweden. Uh, but they also brought back, most notably perhaps, Neil Spohr, who was the, after Einstein, perhaps the most second famous scientist um, in the world, a nuclear physicist, eventually persuaded when the Germans moved against the Jewish population in Denmark to leave. Um, he was flown back from Sweden to Scotland in the belly of a mosquito in a flight which because he had such a large head nearly killed him um, and he genuinely uh, couldn't get the, the um, oxygen mask to fit uh, and so he he lost consciousness um, at altitude and sort of dropped out of the Bombay when they arrived in Scotland and the crew who'd been concerned about his silence throughout the flight uh, thought they might have killed him but happily he was revived and uh, none the worse for his experience but you know there were many many i mean they also used to carry people to, to sweden to carry out um cultural visits um for the british council like you know composer and conductor malcolm Sargent was flown out to stockholm to to, to do music uh, and it, and sadly it wasn't in a in a mosquito it was actually in uh one of the other airplanes which prior to the mosquito boac used um t.s Eliot was flown to uh to stockholm for the same reason to conduct a cultural tour the ambassador wasn't sure uh what kind of books to leave in um in t.s Eliot's room until he discovered that he was a great lover of crime fiction so he just put crime books in there and but Eliot came back to the embassy after a poetry reading covered in lipstick kisses because he'd been sort of mobbed by swedish fans uh i just I, I mean sadly he didn't go in the belly of a mosquito but um uh. <laughs> that that whole ferry route is just the most yeah in in you look at it now you think that that's nuts and, you know i guess if you, yeah. you, you've never heard of neil's board but you went to see oppenheimer that's the kenneth yeah Planner. so yeah that's yeah. right but he, so, he mentions the yeah. british put in the bombay because you know in talking about uh the the, the four roles i, I only mentioned that this thing was made out of wood and and that was the thing that uh, annoyed Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe kind of almost more than anything he uh, he said when when his big day on the, he was supposed to be making a speech on the 10th anniversary of the Nazis accession to power when his big day was ruined by a very very well timed uh, mosquito bombing run 11am over berlin um he sort of ranted that he was green and yellow with envy about these machines that the british who could afford aluminium better than the germans uh, could make in any piano factory all around the country um and i mean on another occasion said to them you know look forget all your efforts this was to the head of his um you know the technical heads of all the german aircraft com companies forget it let us make the this this amazingly primitive aircraft he said you know dripping with sarcasm um let us make let's make mosquitoes um, we'd be better off just making mosquitoes um and uh, you know really really wound him up because the berliners would say you know what uh, and this is quoted, this is from Adolf Gallen's book, uh, the, the fighter race charged with trying to protect Germany. He said, um, you know, the Berliners would say, you know, what is it? You know, the fat one can't even protect us from a few little mosquitoes. Um, and they, you know, they, they never came up with, 
Jet 262, a machine that could reliably um, intercept the mosquitoes. See Colin Bell for for more on that. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break so that we can get the latest from the Pima Air and Space Museum with Head of Collections, Andrew Bowley. Here at the Pima Air and Space Museum with our Douglas A-20G Havoc. Um, The A-20 Havoc was an attack aircraft light bomber of World War II. Um, Originally built and designed with a glass nose with a bombardier. Um, In the Pacific Theater, like B-25s, Pappy Gunn came up with this idea of manning these aircraft with solid noses and a bunch of machine guns for doing strafing attacks on Japanese airfields and attacking Japanese shipping. Um, This aircraft is an actual combat veteran. It flew with the 89th Bomb Squadron in New Guinea uh, on a mission, uh, I think bombing WEWAC. It was damaged and made an emergency landing in a swamp in New Guinea. The crew was recovered and the aircraft sat there pretty much forever until it was found in the 80s and in the early 90s it was recovered by the Royal Australian Air Force. This A-20 with another one that they had they restored the one Helen Pelican, which was another combat veteran from the Pacific. Um, they used a lot of the parts from this aircraft for that aircraft. Then it actually went to a civilian owner, and then we ended up buying from that civilian owner and finished up the restoration and put it on display here. Uh, it's, a unique, it's a unique aircraft in the fact there's only about four, if I recall, A-20 Havocs anywhere on display in the world. Um, with one in a private collection, one at the Air Force Museum, one here, and one in a private collection in Russia. But uh, I'd say it's always been one of my favorite aircraft, I think just because of the, you know, lack of them as survivors and also just seeing a lot of those cool photos from World War II where you see these A-20s coming in low over a ball, bombing Japanese cruisers and, and transports, and, you know, they're, like, literally flying right, like, at mass height over these ships. Um, so I just always found it to be a pretty cool airplane. To learn more about what is on display and what events are coming up at the Pima Air and Space Museum in Tucson, Arizona please do check out their website at www.pimaair.org. And now, back to the show. Let's, let's, let's talk about those, those mosquito raids, because I think my f- there's always someone in your books that I just fall in love with. Mm-hmm. And in this one, it was, it was Ted Sismore, the yeah. navigator, because that poor lad had some stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the the low level raids that they're having to fly and he's having to do by dead reckoning at yeah three hundred miles an hour at weight literal wave top levels, and he's what twenty two I think he- yeah I mean, he's, he's he's yeah he's it, it, I mean it's absolutely extraordinary I mean I've I've got a son who's the same age as Ted Sismore um, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to be rude about him now but. I mean, <laughs> And in fact, he has just today uh, been given a place on a university air squadron, which is uh, oh, very exciting. Yeah. But there's a big difference between um, 
being given a place on a university air squadron um, and being responsible for delivering 18 mosquitoes uh, on over three hours uh, from Norfolk to downtown Copenhagen um, to, to hit a single building. Um, the pressure that this young man, Ted Sismore, was under, and I, like, like you, Matt, I, he was almost, the, before even Basil Embry, Ted Sismore, this young navigator, was my, my way into, the, into it because it seemed so unlikely somehow that such a young man uh, could uh, make such an impression on such a senior officer so quickly and be given such extraordinary levels of responsibility. Um, and he was the person I first wanted to try to get to know a little more. And I managed through an auction house who'd sold um, his medals uh, to make contact with his son, who was uh, you know, only too happy to help. Uh, and I, you know, I was absolutely, I mean, this, every so often you kind of come across a, there's something that makes your day um, and puts a huge smile on your face. When I got in touch with Martin Sismore, his son, he knew me, uh, much to my surprise, uh, because actually both he and Ted, uh, before he died in 2012, um, had read Vulcan 607. So I mean, the thought that Ted Sismore, this, um, the, who, who went on to become uh, by just 23 at the end of the war, 1945, he's just 23 years old, the most decorated navigator of the entire war, um, had um, read uh, Vulcan 607. And what one of the things which uh, surprised me and, you know, perhaps kind of bound me to his story even more tightly was the discovery that um, after leaving the Air Force, he had a very successful um, career in the Air Force after the Second World War. Uh, he worked for Marconi and had, during the Falklands War, been the sort of um, go-between responsible uh, for ensuring that the RAF could get a mobile radar uh, that was in storage, a Marconi mobile radar that was in in storage from uh, from the UK to Chile to give early warning of raids against the um, the, the British fleet um, from Argentina. So um, there, there's a lovely sort of um, symmetry about that for me. Um, and uh, you know, obviously very sad I didn't get to talk to Ted Sismore myself, but I managed to find quite a lot of interview footage with him um, and uh, and also talk to Martin, his son, about some of the things that, that I hadn't had a chance to read about elsewhere. I mean, a, a really remarkable man, very sort of mild-mannered, but there was always this sort of real quiet confidence uh, to him, which clearly Basil Embry, uh, who's a sort of legendary RAF figure, identified, recognised and, and put absolute trust in i mean embry was you know in his late no in his mid 40s by now um but he was putting the uh, uh responsibility for the success of these extremely difficult challenging raids in which there were so many moving parts so many opportunities to get it wrong uh, in the hands of a navigator who's just 23 years old and embry is one of those guys who talent spots so well doesn't he because he he's he's in charge of two group which in and of itself we could be here for hours yeah um but he's just this remarkable almost anti-authority sort of figure isn't yeah. he and i have a question from one of my patreon people which feeds mm -hmm. into who basil Embry is 
fantastic. We call them damn Castillas. Well, I do. I don't think yeah. they like it, but <laughs> it's, um, uh, where are we? I've, I've gone and put it up here. Here we go. Um, Errol Cavett was asking, is there any, any indication that a ride along from, with senior officers happened? I guess with Basil, we need to talk about Wing Commander Smith, don't we? Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, uh, Embry uh, was too senior. I mean, well, it wasn't simply that he was too senior. Uh, Embry had been in the Air Force uh, throughout the 30s. He, in, interestingly, Bomber Harris had been uh, his squadron commander when they were um, stationed in Iraq, and he'd been to Afghanistan. He'd won the DFC before the Second World War even broke out, uh, Embry. And he was a squadron commander. He's a boss of a Blenheim squadron during the Battle of France. Um, and on the day that he was supposed to hand over command to uh, to his successor, he realised that he could slip in one, mar- one last raid uh, just before the deadline, which he did, and got shot down. And, of course, you know, Embry being Embry, uh, he was picked up uh, not by just anyone, but... Um, by uh, the sort of most senior German tank commander that, that was there in um, in France, um, and uh, so he wore the sort of you know Nazi general's great coat in the car as he was interrogated by, by, by about the flak. He said, "Well, yeah, I think your flak is very good. It shot me down after all." But that was the beginning of a sort of two month odyssey uh, where he escaped from the Germans and was uh, evading them um, in France for two. He was captured again. But he killed his guards, uh, hid in a dung in a dung heap for three hours um, before uh, getting away after they'd come and gone. Um, got to Paris, uh, tried to pretend he was American to see if the Americans could get him out. Uh, managed to blag a bicycle from the Salvation Army, but eventually he got it back over the border and near Perpignan to Spain in the boot of a car driven by somebody from the uh, British Embassy in Spain. So by the time he was back in the UK and wanting to fight again, he was always wanting to fight, um, he had a price on his head because the Germans said he'd murdered his guards. Uh, I'm not sure he'd have seen it the same way. Um, So he was was, um, a valuable commodity to the Germans, uh, was, as he became ever more senior, uh, somebody who should not have been flying uh, submissions um, over over occupied Europe, um, but he adopted an identity as of Wing Commander Smith. He got um, dog tags. Uh, he had uh, the name tapes put in his um, in his flights flight gear, and got rid of all of his badges of rank and replaced them with um, with Wing Commander Smiths, uh, and then flew on kind of all of the most um, eye-catching and significant raids that two group and 140 wing particularly flew for the rest of the war he took over in um, in summer of 1943 um, and uh, but you know as they began to prepare for for, for uh, d-day um, but uh, the only raid he didn't fly on um, was the Amiens prison raid, uh, and that was because he was specifically told uh, he could not by Trafford Lee Mallory, uh, who then insisted that they have a meeting at, at, um, at Fighter Command uh, so that uh, he could make sure Embry was not disobeying that order. And that, that also meant poor Ted Sismal um, couldn't go either because Embry told him that if you can't go, um, if I can't go, you definitely can't go either. Um, so it meant uh, 
Percy Pickard, who was um, perhaps after Guy Gibson, uh, the most famous bomber pilot in the Air Force, uh, then led the raid, despite being quite inexperienced in flying um, mosquitoes at low level and, and uh, lost his life with his navigator on, on, on that raid. The Amion raid is just yeah. remarkable. You know, fly, flying in snow at low mm-hmm. level you know, with yeah. mi- minimal minimal fighter cover because most of the typhoons had turned back and you've got one seven that's right four and two four three i think were the ones that stuck with them um, yeah and, and and of course the, the one sector they don't cover is the one where picard runs into an fw 190 that's right yeah, t- terrible God, you think the amiel race amazing you should hear about the copenhagen raid and there's a book all about it which is <laughs> <laughs> but this this is what i liked about it was you 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 cover amion you cover our house you know um yeah jean de saint longchamp makes gets a yeah. mention in there because it's a gestapo shot you don't I, I did call this one out in our notes you don't <laughs> you don't give old 146 wing and, and there are multiple attacks in amsterdam or rotterdam under johnny wells in, in no. typhoons but there's I, that I, I don't one one thing Sorry. i no, it's, well, it's it's another book. There's, there's, but it's a good opportunity for you mention. You meant it, you, we might have skipped over it if I hadn't left it out, mm. and it's given you an opportunity to mention it now. <laughs> there, there's, I, I, there's, there's so much. I, 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 my notes go on and on, and we've been chatting mm. for ages now. But there's, there's a bit in it where I think it, it's come up today um, or this week on military history Twitter that that terrible thing, which is napalm in Europe. Yeah, and, and that is something that has always been not really discussed. You know, uh, Lee Miller famously had mm. a lot of her footage yep. from St. Marlo taken. The typhoons used it in um, uh, uh, against positions in in uh, Arnhem just before Plunder Varsity. But Embry's men use it to devastating effect in in Normandy, don't they? In in the summer of four. Well, uh, actually, it's a it's a little further south than yeah. that. Um, it's um, it's an SS barracks. Um, I'm going to forget that um, it says uh, Bonne uh, Matur, and I'm going to forget the name of the nearest town to that, but it's a, a little further south than, than Normandy. Um, and it's where uh, there was uh, prior to and after um, D-Day um, an SAS unit operating, uh, an operation called Operation Bull Basket, and their job was uh, in harness with the resistance uh, to try to do everything that they could to uh, obstruct and delay and de- uh, make more difficult the Germans' reinforcements of Normandy. And uh, they were very uh, successful in doing that. The SAS with the resistance actually made sure that the SS didn't get to Normandy uh, at a time when they might have done some uh, damage. And uh, But they were subsequently ambushed in a forest, uh, this SS unit, and they were uh, killed pretty unpleasant. Those who, who didn't get away were killed pretty nastily. And uh, when word got back, uh, it was requested of uh, two group that they... Uh, uh, exact vengeance for that and uh basil embry was only too happy to do that uh and they were using for the first time for the british at any rate uh napalm which had been developed in the in the states uh and uh you know it's nasty stuff it's designed to burn a great temperature but also to sort of glom onto whatever it's uh stuck to and you know the uh embry's sort of parting statement in the briefing prior to the mission um 
when he'd explained who their target was and what they had done to these uh, SAS men that they'd captured and who should have been, were it not for the Hitler's commando order, uh, treated as prisoners of war and with all of the protections that that affords. Um, he explained all of that and said to his crews, you know, you, you, you let the bastards burn. And that is, that's exactly what, what happened. Uh, the mosquitoes went in, took out a line of barracks on, uh, next to a river. Um, and, uh, there wasn't much left of either them or, uh, the SS who had been in there tucking into lamb stew, uh, made with uh, animals that they had poached from local farmers. Yeah. It, it was a perfect target. It was, yeah, wood yeah. barracks in a wood, which is exactly mm-hmm. what napalm was designed to go after yeah it, so. yeah 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 i mean the, embry yielded to to no one in his hatred of the enemy i mean that that what he had seen in france at the beginning of the war um there you know he he'd, he'd seen them uh running over refugees in tanks uh, uh he uh um he was very kind of affected by that and um driven by it and a determination to uh to to uh, to not rest actually until the germans were beaten and he sought other people who uh he identified that 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 trait in too because they're gonna have to be pushing home against targets yeah. that most most people would 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 balk at yeah. on, on that thought of pushing pushing on another one of my patreon listeners who's we probably all know it's joe wilding friend of the show who's yeah. been on he was asking when you were reading it and you do point this out in the book um what you sort of found when a fully loaded mosquito was going into a target like mm-hmm. copenhagen versus after it had dropped its its payload what sort of speed maneuverability would they notice for it and you, you do describe that quite well especially on the the exit on on copenhagen which dear listener you'll notice i'm talking around because you got to read the book to, to find out <laughs> what happens on operation carthage but just on that sort of technical thing was she a sort of leaden duck before she dropped her load or was it only afterwards she became the swan that's a great sentence mm. um was she a leaden duck before she dropped her load um no um i mean uh, you know the mosquito was blessed with an abundance of power um and so you know takeoffs could be hairy uh particularly when they were heavily loaded um and they always had that that, if you were going to get sort of bitten by a mosquito it was going to be on takeoff much more so than, than than landing even where you've not got power going through the engines but but no once you're in the air uh, they were not, uh, with, because of that abundance of power, um, uh, you know, overly um, burdened by a 2,000-pound bomb load. Those are the FB6s that were flown in um, on uh, by, by two group. They carried two 500-pound bombs in the bomb bay, and this is unlike the bomber models, which carried four, because the breaches from the 20-millimeter cannons in the nose uh, filled up half of the bomb bay. So they had two uh, bombs uh, in the Bombay, two 500 pound bombs under the wings. And, you know, obviously they're going to be a little bit more nimble um, than uh, than they would have been without a 2,000 pound bomb load. Um, 
but um, really the only drag you're creating is uh, is, is minimal um, and under the wings because they 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 kept two of them in the in the Bombay. Um, I I didn't uh, encounter a single reference uh, in the research I was doing to uh, mosquitoes being um, uh, 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 kind of heavy, sluggish, difficult to control. Uh, um, unmaneuverable, uh, or you're in anything else, um, uh, suggesting that they were um, kind of anything less than they they might have been when they were carrying carrying bombs. I mean, you know, you you only sort of hear praise for uh, for their performance. Dear listener, we've run out of time to talk about the shell house and and things like that. So there's a fantastic (laughs) book that is out today when you're listening to this, which will tell you all about it and the incredible people um, who were unfortunate enough to find themselves in it on that March morning. I have to ask you to wrap up Roland. Mm -hmm. All of your books are very human. You you tend to to find that sort of that human thread as we talked about to come for this one with the story of the Danish resistance and mm-hmm. the way not doing a spoiler here, because it's the reason there's a raid, they get rolled up quite aggressively yeah. towards the end of 44, early 45. Mm-hmm. That seemed to me to be quite a different angle to the sort of the humans, that, the humans, the people that you've written yeah. about in the past. How did that affect you as you were writing it? Um, quite substantially. Uh, I, yeah, it, 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 you're right to identify it. I felt an enormous duty um, with this book in a way almost that I haven't with the previous one. If you think about the previous books, um, with the exception, I mean, you know, that somebody was killed on the Vulcan 6 or 7 raid. Um, obviously, people were killed in, in, in um, Harrier 809, but I'm largely talking about a military fighting a military. Um, and in some cases, uh, it, you know, in one case, it's a show of force or it's a space mission. But um, that's quite significantly different to uh, uh, um, a book about a, a raid that ultimately takes place in the centre of capital city. And, you know, Embry and Sismore, their first reaction to being uh, begged to carry out this raid by the Danish resistance was that, you know, we're going to kill 300 people. You know, th- this, this is, we, we, we can't risk this. But the Danes said, you know, unless you do, great many more people are going to be killed because of the resistance is gone. Um, Denmark, now until the end of the war, but also Denmark's future after the war um, is destroyed. Um, I mean, they, they didn't embrace the prospect of flying the raid with any enthusiasm at all um but you know those are the hard choices that people like Embry and Sismore and indeed the Danes in Copenhagen who after weighing up the pros and cons um said fly the raid had to contend with you know these were really really difficult decisions to which there was no right answer but when when it comes to the sort of human story um the thing that made the greatest impression on me um, was getting to meet a man called John Holstein uh, in in Denmark. And John's now in his eighties. Um, he was uh, five years old in 1944, um, and he was on the receiving end of um, bombs from uh, uh, Operation Carthage. Uh, he was dug out of rubble. 
Um, he was um, taken to a hotel, he was patched up. He had uh, suffered from a fear of flying um, after that, uh, which he subsequently overcame um, well, quite, quite substantially in that he went on to enjoy a career um, as a, a, a sport parachutist glider pilot and uh, with an engineering company that made harnesses for search and rescue helicopters. Um, so he really understood the... Um, the nature of the thing that uh, these incredible uh, air crews were required to do. But as I said, you know, as a boy, uh, uh, he was traumatized by what had, what had happened in, in Copenhagen. But I went to visit some of the sites that were relevant to, uh, to the Copenhagen raid with John, who's sort of incredibly sprightly um, in his eighties and just really lovely guy. Um, And we, we looked up and down the road where actually one of the mosquitoes, I know you've been trying not to sort of uh, share spoilers, but a mosquito was lost um, on, on the Copenhagen raid um, and the tragic consequences of that. And I went, went to visit the site with John um, after we'd gone to some of the other places that were relevant to the raid, um, including the, the railway yard where the mosquito that crashed hit a um, a pylon which led to its its, its crash um, and he looked up and down the road uh, and sort of reflected on what it was uh, these air crews had undertaken on behalf of his country and the sacrifice that he'd made uh, they, they had made and he just uh, kind of said quietly to himself um, that, that they were heroes um, and um, that was more than anything else that was the thing that guided and informed how strongly i felt about trying to get this story right uh, i think almost more than any of the other ones i felt a real obligation uh to those who had died in the air those who died on the ground uh not just in 1944 but um you know throughout the war um to, to get their story right and that you know i would be for readers to judge whether or not i have to this reader is it i i thought it was a very difficult thing to balance and i think you you, you did it very well especially for what happens on the raid um, yeah. which is tragic but as you said that that, that there's so so many balls in the air for it mm-hmm. dear listener read the book it is out today if you're listening to this on on day of release um, give it a plug, Roland. What's it called? It's a very complicated title. <laughs> so, uh, it's called Mosquito, uh, the RAF's legendary wooden wonder and its most extraordinary raid. Uh, and at the, uh, the heart of the book is this uh, unbelievably challenging but crucial raid on the Gestapo headquarters in Denmark. But through the story, I've uh, through the book, I've kind of threaded, I hope, uh, um, an appreciation of the, the mosquito story um, more broadly. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, Matt. Thanks so much for asking me along. I cannot thank Roland enough for his time. He was incredibly generous to spend the evening with me the other week. And as we said, today is release day for Mosquito. So this is not the one you would get today. It'll be a lovely hardback like that so please do look it up as always you can get it if you're in the uk from the damncastersbookshop.org link in the description below 10 percent of that goes to support the pod we hope to have more from roland we'll have to see if he'll come back but there's lots to talk about he is fantastic as you've seen and heard so thank you so much to him 
buy the book. It really is good, because if it wasn't, I wouldn't have had him on the show. Next week, we do have the episode that I teased last week, which is all about R101. And that is the fabulous Sam Gwynn joining us to discuss His Majesty's Airship, which is all about the... This is going to upset a few people. The disastrous R101. Now, people have been tweeting at me because I'm not a fan of the big airship. Let's find out more next week and we can discuss it then. Until then, thank you so much for your support. As always, if you want to join us on Patreon, become a damn castier. There's all kinds of stuff happening over there. You get these episodes early with different intros and outros. Opportunities to ask questions like Joe and Errol did in today's episode. So you can join up from £3 a month. Plus a bit of that, check the link in the description and you can find out all the details there. Tell your friends as well. Pod's doing well. We've got some exciting news coming up about our sponsor, the fabulous Pima Air and Space Museum out in Tucson, Arizona. They've got a lot going on. We're going to talk about that some more. Watch this space and follow us on all the socials, including Blue Sky now, which I'm liking because it's quiet and not nuts. There we go. Until next time. Thank you so much for your support. Please do take care of yourselves. Bye. The Damcasters is hosted and produced by Matt Bone and is a Bony Abroad podcast production. To learn more about our podcast and check out our previous episodes, head to www.thedamcasterspod.com.